the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon... They will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. So do you feel it? Y'all got a heart beating inside your chest? That means you can feel the music, you can feel the rhythm. What a difference a day made.
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a best-selling author whose books have been translated into 13 languages. He was born in Israel, where he went to school, served in the Army, and was an award-winning copywriter. He attended graduate school uh, in the United States and uh, launched a successful career as an executive in Silicon Valley, and then he turned to write. He has a new book. It's called If Anyone Calls, Tell Them I Died. It's uh, part memoir and his fourth book. His name is Emmanuel Rosen. He joins me by phone. Emmanuel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, this is a fascinating book and very appropriate uh, for this uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, it, it Actually, it's kind of a detective story. It follows... Uh, your grandparents who left Germany really just just before the Holocaust and and took up uh, an, a new life in Tel Aviv in Israel. Um, a, a couple of things come to mind to ask first. Um, a lot of memoirs are, are people's first books. How is this your fourth book? Well, I started uh, by writing business books. So after I uh, uh. ended my, my Silicon Valley uh, career, I always felt I wanted to write a book about word of mouth. That's the way the word spread about our product. So I wrote that, and uh, one thing uh, led to another. I wrote two more business books. But I always felt that I wanted to tell my grandparents and my mom's story. So uh, I'm glad I finally... Finish that task. Well, I, I and I and I want to ask you about this because it's it's an interesting story. Yet it has a, a tragic element. Um, many would say that that any Jews who got out of Germany um, before the Holocaust had had really, despite their their losses and leaving things behind, had had really come across good fortune. But but yet. Your grandfather ended up committing suicide. Yeah, exactly. So, so they were the lucky ones, quote unquote, and in many ways they were because they. And I'm glad they left Germany in time. Uh, but I think this book demonstrates the other uh, consequences of uh, the persecution and the Holocaust, uh, which applied to millions of people who managed to leave Europe early. And that is the, the uprooting, uh, the the feeling of guilt that these people uh, suffered, and the, the shattered dreams. You know, they had careers. So, so my grandfather was a successful lawyer in Germany, and then in 1933, one day, imagine you get a letter that tells you that you can no longer do whatever you're doing because you are Jewish or whatever other race or religion. So they left, as you said, they left for Tel Aviv, and they tried to establish their life there. And uh, I think it's interesting there is a difference between how 
my grandfather coped with this displacement and my grandmother uh, coped with this. He uh, ultimately could not cope. He, was, he never felt that he was part of Palestine or Israel later. And going back on that trip to Germany that I followed them in, uh, he realized that he also no longer belonged to Germany, so he kind of was left in mid-air, so to speak. Uh, and, and, and the book is about me trying to understand why he did it. I found this box of letters uh, after my mom died. These were letters that were sent from my grandparents to her on that trip that they made in 1956 back to Germany for a couple of months. And, uh, you know, I had someone translate these letters for me because I don't speak German, or I understand some. And then the letters left a lot of questions, so I decided to go and actually went to Germany, stayed in the same hotels, had coffee in the same cafe houses, etc. And, uh, and I tried to construct uh, and try to understand why he did it, uh, and why it ended so tragically. Now, your grandfather, uh, Hugo Mendel, was um, a successful lawyer before escaping Germany. Was he not able to practice law in uh, Israel? Correct. I mean, you uh, if you were a, a, a lawyer who came from Germany uh, to uh, Palestine at the time, it was under the British mandate, so the British law was the law of the land, and it's different than the German law. So you had to go through an exam and show your uh, knowledge of, the, of British law. Now, there were German Jews uh, who were lawyers uh, in Germany who uh, came to Palestine and did take that exam and became successful lawyers, even judges and uh, Supreme Court judges. My grandfather was 42 years old. He did not speak English. So he uh, chose to start a business, uh, a mesh wire fence uh, business, and he bought machinery in Germany and brought it, but the business failed. I think he did not, first of all, he didn't speak the language. <laughs> he didn't speak Hebrew. Also, he didn't speak English, so it's very difficult to run a business like that. But also, I, didn't, I don't think he... He uh, felt com comfortable with the men business mentality, mentality, maybe. In any way, the, the business failed, and then he was actually hired by the people who he sold the, the business to at a great loss. He hi was hired by them as a salesman. So he became, instead of this respected lawyer in Germany, he suddenly was a salesman who walked from store to store. And... Uh, to sell his merchandise. Um, that, that was his situation. More with best-selling author Emmanuel Rosen, straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. 
All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with best-selling author Emmanuel Rosen, straight ahead. Emmanuel, I, I was reading something from an interview you did where you you grew up in Israel, and you commented that 
the Holocaust wasn't really talked about much in Israel. Um, I was a little surprised by that. Does it strike you as odd after being in the United States for so many years, looking back on it, that, that it wasn't something that was talked about more? Yes, and, and, and in that sense, is there was a shift in Israel over time, but right after the Holocaust, I mean, I'm talking about the early uh, 50s, etc., when, when I grew up, uh, there was hardly any discussion of the, of the Holocaust because Israel was trying to construct the identity of the strong uh, Israeli, you know, who was fighting uh, for his independence as opposed to the survivors who were perceived as weak, unjustifiably so, but they were perceived as weak. You know, why did you go to, the, to Auschwitz, etc.? cetera? Um, so I think these, this approach caused people not to talk about it if they were victims, if they were survivors. They wanted to integrate into mainstream society. And uh, there was also, you know, it's an extremely traumatic experience, and a lot of times people don't tend to talk about their pain. I think that the first turning point was around the Eichmann trial, Adolf Eichmann, who was uh, chief Nazi who managed uh, the whole transportation to the death camps and the ghettos, etc. And he was caught by Israel and brought to trial, which was very public. I think that kind of opened things a little bit, and people suddenly started hearing about uh, what really was going on uh, in this thing called the Holocaust. Suddenly, you know, there were lots of testimonies, and this was on the radio. Everybody was listening to it. I remember my mom buying the first transistor radio in our home, (laughs) listening to it passionately. Uh, And that kind of opened things up, and, and, you know, to, and then there was the second generation or the third generation who started uh, digging in, and this, these are people like me who were more interested in what happened to our parents, to our great-parents, uh, grandparents, and uh, so today it's very different. Today people are talking a lot about the Holocaust. Well, and there's even been this uh, uh, quiet sort of... Um rewriting of history by some that that would like to see um, the Holocaust denied. And, and so that has caused a number of people to want to tell stories like the one you're telling about, uh, you know, having relatives who fled Germany to escape the Holocaust. And, um, you know, there's a different reason now that we're beyond 75 years past the event. Um, in fact, getting closer to 100 than 75. Um, to to tell these stories and, and remind people that this event really did happen. Absolutely, and, and, and unfortunately, things like that can happen again. I mean, this is no theory. And, uh, you know, it's not only people who were lucky to to escape. You know, I tell in the book uh, the story of my grandmother's mother, Netschen Stern, and she actually joined them at some point in Tel Aviv, but then she decided to go back to Germany. You know, this was back in 1936. 
and she later in December of 41 was de- deported to Riga, Latvia, and this is where she died. She, we're not sure exactly how, but she was either shot or uh, uh, died of starvation after she gave her food to younger people. We have conflicting uh, uh, testimonies about that. But, but yeah, I, I think it's so important to remind people that this really happened, uh, both to people who suffered, uh, you know, the main victims of the Holocaust are, of course, those who died in the camps and in the gas chambers, but there are also millions of people who were uprooted and displaced, and they uh, suffered too. The title of your book, Emmanuel, is is very evocative. It's, uh, if anyone calls, tell them I died. Um, how did that title come about? <laughs> okay, that that title is actually something my mom used to say every afternoon before her uh, daily nap time. So she, that was kind of her one of her one-liners or uh, jokes. She she had all these. I think part of her coping mechanism with with life, because she she had several tragedies in her life, including her father uh, committing suicide. So she had all these ready to go one-liners, and so I chose that because uh, I love this saying, uh, but also obviously because of the topic of the book, which is my grandfather's suicide and trying to understand why he did it. It's also related to that because, you know, there is a point where in some way he said that, you know, if anyone calls, tell them I died. You know, I don't want to hear from anyone. Um, um, Yeah. It sounds to me uh, like your grandfather and grandmother had very different emotional um, feelings about what they had had gone through. Did you get the impression as you were researching and putting this uh, book together, Emmanuel, that your grandmother understood why your grandfather committed suicide? I'm not sure if she understood. She really tried to help him. I think that part of the reason why they went to Germany in 1956 for that uh, two-month trip was that she thought, you know, maybe if he'll come back to the place where he, I remember him being happy, maybe he'll be happy again. And uh, but they definitely had very different ways of of coping, uh, my, my grandmother was much more sociable. She, she loved people. She had many friends. She was someone with a very, uh, you know, optimistic uh, point of view. Of course, I knew her only as a grandkid, so I, I see her right. from that point of view. But, but I also talked to many other people uh, who knew her in the family, and, and yeah, that's a the what you see and in their letters you also get this uh, feeling of difference uh, first of all my grandfather never talks uh, talks in the letters about his emotions where my grandmother is not shy about showing her emotions she was extremely angry at the germans she wasn't shy about t- telling my mom about this she also you know in her, her letters when she talks about Israel, she said, us Israelis, or 
our kids, our wonderful kids in, in Israel, etc. She, she felt maybe even more and more as the trip went on, she felt more Israeli as opposed to my grandfather who was detached. And I think that's another difference in the way they, they coped. As I said earlier, my grandfather did not feel part of Israel, but he also realized that he wasn't part of, of Germany after this trip. Um, so definitely a difference in their approach, and uh, which I think explains uh, at least partially the uh, the suicide. And forgive me for asking this, but did did you say a little bit ago, Emmanuel, that your mother passed away? My mother passed away. Yeah, and uh, she she passed away in ninety two and left these. You know, in all of her belongings i found these letters my father passed away when i was eight months old so she raised us as a single mother uh and uh and my grandmother helped us a lot helped her a lot to to raise us uh, uh so so my, my mom didn't have an easy life but at a certain point she really wanted to uh, uh do justice in a way uh, to her father, who was, uh, she, she wanted essentially to show that those who expelled him from his homeland and from his profession as a respected lawyer were responsible uh, for his death. And this is where she uh, conducted this uh, trial that ends the book. The book ends with a trial that my grandmother and my mother uh, filed against the German authorities to show that it's actually the Germans' responsibility for him taking his life. Um, what was the rationale for that, um, Emmanuel? Did they did they believe that that the Germans allowed the Holocaust to happen? But regardless of the Holocaust, here we you know there is. A letter that told my grandfather, you can no longer appear in court because you do not belong to the Aryan race. And uh, that letter, uh, which was not theoretical, of course, after that letter, he was not allowed to practice law in Germany because he was Jewish. And there were all, all, all the uh, uh, German Jews who were lawyers, and there were thousands of them, they were no longer allowed to practice law. And that forced him essentially out of the country. He, he lost his livelihood. And my uh, grandma and my mom argued that this is what caused his uh, death. And then something they never knew, but I found out in my research, uh, something outrageous, I still, <laughs> I still can't get over it, that the court assigned a a psychiatrist as, as an expert witness to determine is there a connection between the persecution in 1933 and the suicide in 1957. Well, what I found out that that psychiatrist was actually had a Nazi past, uh, and he was part of the notorious T4 program. As part of that program, he sent mentally ill people to their death to improve, quote-unquote, the Aryan race. So to think that in the 60s, a German court assigned someone like this 
who was part of the Nazi party and sent people to their deaths to, <laughs> it's part of that program, that, he assigned, that the court assigned uh, this guy as a psychiatrist and expert witness is, is outrageous. Uh, I wish I could go back in time and tell my mom about that, because they didn't know about that. That's chilling. I know. I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure what to make of that, Emmanuel. That's um, almost uh, well. You know, you can't you can't make that stuff up. That's for sure. Yeah, and there are things that, as you say, there are Holocaust deniers. There are people who talk say that the Holocaust never existed, etc. But there are also things that happened in Germany after the fact. Uh, in the years following the Holocaust. Now, I think overall Germany did a good job in looking at its past in the 60s, 70s. Younger people did that, and there is a change in Germany also in, in, the, in that approach. But early on, you know, a lot of these Nazis, they stayed in key positions, and, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't just disappear from Germany. So these things were undercurrent. It was, of course, taboo to say that you're anti-Semitic or anything like that. Uh, but these things happen in Germany, too. When you started what became research for the book, Emmanuel, were you looking for answers primarily for yourself, or did you know, or, or when did you know, that, that this story was, was really worthy of, of telling for others? After the, the letters were translated to me, I, I hired a, a young, a very nice woman from Germany who was sitting with me afternoons and translating to me uh, the letters to me, reading them aloud to me and translating what I didn't understand. And once we finished and I understood what uh, my grandparents went through and also what my mom went through, sitting at home worried about her father and just three years after she lost her husband, and I, I really thought, wow, this is a story that is worth telling. And after I found out about this Nazi psychiatrist, I, I'm sure now it's worth telling that story. The, um, boy, I'm not, I'm, I'm not even sure where to go with some of this. It's such an incredible story, Emmanuel. Um, so you knew right away that that this was a, a story that needed to be told. Did you have an audience in mind? Were there were there people that you imagined should read this book? You know, the the first audience. Actually, I wrote a very early version in Hebrew uh, that I sent out to the family members, uh, and that that was kind of the core audience. And then there are Lots of people who grew up in similar family background, whether in the, U in the U.S. or in Israel, uh, either from Germany or from other countries that I thought uh, would be interested. Uh, but then the more I wrote, I understood that there, there is a broader message here about uprooting and displacement. Uh, you know, there the are refugees and uh, people who are displaced because of wars uh, all over the world. I read somewhere there is an estimate that there are 65 million people 
um, like that around the world. You know, think about someone from Syria who's now a refugee in Germany or in Sweden uh, or people in this country who are people from Latin America who are here or vice versa. And then you see that there is also an element of social justice here about this problem is not going to go away. And we need to think about people who are displaced and the psychological toll that some of these people can pay. Because some people are just, just fine and even thrive in a new environment, but not everyone does. So, you know, when, when we talk about deportation so casually, you know, deportation can have serious consequences. So I think now I think about it more also as a book that someone who cares about these issues can read. Emmanuel, how did you end up deciding to leave Israel and, and go to the United States? No, we came uh, initially for, uh, my wife is a scientist, so she came for her postdoc. And then I went to school here too, and uh, two kids uh, out of my four were born here, and then I joined a startup. So one thing led to another, and we we stayed here. We It's... it's uh, Hard to leave California, let's put it this way. Although <laughs> M- Michigan is also very nice. I love yeah, Michigan. Yeah, it is. But I lived in Los Angeles for a short time, and I can understand uh, how anyone could get addicted to the weather there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, how long did it take you to, to write this book? Because it, it sounds like there was a great deal of research involved. Yes. Well, it, it actually, I started it in 2003 and then wrote this early version that uh, in Hebrew, and then I put it on hold, and I wrote two additional books, and, you know, things just happened. But I got back to it seriously, I think, about two years ago. Yes, and I did a lot of research beyond the trip itself of going back to Germany and then translating, once I got the folder of the trial, I had to translate it. That was that's a thick folder. To, uh, that folder gave me a lot of answers on regarding what really happened. Uh, and I, of course, read books uh, from people from the period. So there was definitely a lot of research. And I spent, I think, overall about five years uh, between the, the early period and, and the recent period where I finished the book in English. What was it like going to uh, to Germany for you and retracing your grandparents, uh, or at least your grandfather's footsteps? Yeah, I, I can tell you that, uh, that it's, it was very strange at times because I remember very vividly my first day in Dusseldorf. You know, I, I came to the hotel, put away my stuff, and then walked around the streets of Dusseldorf. And I knew my grandfather really, as I said, he didn't express his emotions, but he gave a lot of details. We, we walked on this street and this street. So I did exactly that. And I heard all this German around me, but I also heard a lot of German in my head of, uh, because my, my grandmother al- always spoke to me in German, but not enough, I guess, so that I understand the language. So I had these random words popping in my head that words that I don't understand their meaning. It was a very strange experience. And of course, after a while, uh, you know, I went to German multiple times and 
then I went also to meet the translators of the book because there is a version of the book in German and I worked with them very closely. So I think also I feel that there is a shift in the way I feel about Germany. So the, initially in that first uh, visit to Germany in Dusseldorf, I was very uh, guarded. I didn't talk to anyone and I... Uh, I wouldn't say that I was scared, but I, you always have this feeling of you look at people and, you know, if it's an older gentleman, you say, okay, what, what were you doing back then? Um, so now, you, felt I, some, I, you felt some apprehension. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that changed some after uh, some times and multiple visits and now uh, working on this translation very closely with this team of translators in, in Germany. Um, the, what was it like for your grandparents in those, those early days, um, you know, in the mid and late 30s when they, they first started their life in Israel? At first, there was some optimism, and uh, I'm basing it on, on pictures that I see from, from the period. You know, they stand next to the uh, factory that my grandfather started, and, and then my grandmother started a cafe, and you have pictures of them smiling in the cafe. Um, but, you know, the economics didn't work for them, and uh, the business failed, and then the, um, the cafe had to close as well. I think it was related. Uh, they, again, there was a difference. My, my grandma w went with the flow. You know, she, was, she had friends. There was a very strong community of what they call Yekes. These are German Jews or Jews from German-speaking countries who came to, to Palestine. So they, they had all these other Yekes around them. They spoke only German. My grandmother never learned Hebrew. 50 years, she lived in Israel more than 50 years, never le uh, learned Hebrew uh, except for a few words, and she al that's why she always talked to me in German. And so they lived in their community. Uh, my grandmother was happier than my grandfather because he suffered greatly because of the uh, loss of his status as a respected lawyer. Uh, my grandma then was hired, you know, she's, after she closed the cafe, she started working as a waitress, and things were hard. You know, you wake up at 4 a.m. In, in order to start the coffee going at 6. You know, it's, it's hard, especially if you're someone who used to just sit in cafes and schmooze with your friends. Um, but she coped better than uh, my grandfather. Also, my grandfather was less sociable, so he had, didn't have enough friends, I think, and... Uh, and that affected also what, what was going on in the family. You know, they were not enjoying their uh, time. Let's put it this way. More with best-selling author Emmanuel Rosen straight ahead. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. 
Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and Start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. From the Tom Sumner Show. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with best-selling author Emmanuel Rosen straight ahead. When your grandfather 
decided to leave Germany. Of course, he'd he'd had the ability to continue to practice law taken away from him. He'd he'd been a successful lawyer. But did he have assets that he was able to take with him? He uh, they did not own their home, but they had some savings, and there was an agreement between the. Nazis and the Jewish agency, I think, uh, on how Jews could get out uh, their money out of Germany, and that was called the transfer agreement. So he bought some machinery with his savings, and using uh, using his savings, and and so the idea was the Nazis benefited from it because people bought uh, German products, and then the products would be transferred to Palestine. And in this case, this was machinery to uh, build uh, mesh, mesh uh, fencing. Um, so that he, had the, he wasn't a millionaire, but he had some assets, some money, and he transferred it to Palestine that way. So he was able to afford to get him and your grandmother to Israel and, and really invest in a startup regardless of how it turned out, but he had a little money to, to try to work with. Yes. He hadn't had all his assets seized the way some did a few years later. Exactly, yes. And it also points to something else, that people who did not have anything, they were stuck there. They could not get out because also the, Brit, the British government wouldn't let you in to Palestine if you didn't have some money. So that's uh, another injustice uh, that uh, had to do with class. If you were a professional who had some money, you could go usually. If you didn't, um, you were stuck just because you couldn't go anywhere. Well, this is, uh, this is an amazing story. Um, when you were when you found out about these things, um, had you heard any of this, or or was it not until you read the letters after your mother died? I knew a little bit uh, before um, my mother passed away. It's not that we didn't talk at all about the past. I knew that my grandfather was a respected lawyer, and I knew that they had to leave, etc., but most of the story that uh, I heard from my mom or from uh, my grandmother were very uh, happy stories about Germany. You know, they told me all kind of funny anecdotes from uh, their childhood uh, and, uh, and nothing of this. Of course, when I was a teenager, I started reading about the Holocaust and reading about the history of Nazism, and then I, I started to get a sense of these. Things, but really, only after the letters and and the connection that I suddenly felt to the Holocaust. Because growing up, I didn't even think that the Holocaust is related to me personally in any way. Did your mother have siblings? Yes, uh, she had a brother, and that's another interesting story. Because her brother uh, was se- uh, seven years old when they came to Palestine. And How old was he- your mother? My mother was 11. Okay. So these two kids, and they became Israelis, uh, but my uncle, Rafi, became even more, more Israeli than my mom, and he integrated very quickly into, 
into Israel, and then he joined the Secret Service and later the Mossad. And in fact, again, something that I discovered in my research was that he was uh, he was a head of one of the Mossad units that was hunting down Nazi criminals because he spoke German, obviously, and uh, he also issued a German passport, I found out, in the archive there in Germany. And later on, I found out also there was the district attorney of the state of Hessen, uh, of Hessen, with a man by the name of Fritz Bauer. He was a Jewish lawyer who stayed in Germany and practiced law as a district attorney. And he's the one who actually gave Israel the information about the whereabouts of Adolf Eichmann. And I yeah. learned after my uncle died, I learned that he was in charge of the contact with Fritz Bauer. So he's, uh, he was involved in some ways he, uh, in bringing uh, Adolf Eichmann to justice. Uh, and, and I'm sure he was involved in many other things that I'll never know about uh, as part of his job in the Mossad. But he was an interesting character as well. Well, it, it sounds like um, this is a book rich with... Um, with interesting stories and and stories that we don't always associate with what happened in Germany that led to uh, the Holocaust and uh, uh, and what happened to some of the people that that left um, before those those horrors uh, could be. Um, hoisted on people um the book is called if anyone calls tell them i died and uh it's written by emmanuel rosen who is uh, a um, best-selling author and it it it's it's just so appropriate to as we observe holocaust remembrance day um and emmanuel thank you so much for sharing uh, some of this story with me today um i do you, what's what's up next for you emmanuel now that this book is is finished and out <laughs> i want i want to write you know so first i wrote business books and then i wrote this memoir now i'm thinking about maybe writing fiction i just started something but uh who knows where it will lead me but i'm to, to, on to my next adventure well, and 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 I wish you all the luck with that. Is um, is what you're working on World War II related or something maybe more contemporary? M- more contemporary and and happier. I, I think it's good for me <laughs> to switch <laughs> to switch topics a little bit. Well, I, but I would think it'd be tempting after all the research you did and some of the things you found out. Maybe some things that you used in the book or didn't use in the book that you know might might draw you in that direction but uh yeah you absolutely i mean i probably can write two more books i have a lot of material but i i'm i'm ready to uh, rest a little bit from these uh, sad stories although they're also happy because you know again my grandma and my mom raised us we had a beautiful childhood and uh, not everything uh, was depressing but the the book itself you know focuses on the on the tragic side 
Well, and and it sounds it sounds like it's a, a sadder story than it is because of your grandfather's suicide, and and because of the times. But you know, as as you've pointed out, there are you know some interesting uh, stories of of perseverance and family and and a lot of other things that are that are very positive that are in the book anyway Emmanuel thanks so much uh, is there um, I, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they find might find out more obviously uh, the book is a great place to to start to read uh, if anyone calls tell them I died by Emmanuel Rosen but uh, Emmanuel, do you, do you have a website or someplace where people yeah, can find out? Yeah, I have a website. It's uh, emmanuel-rosen.com, and I spell Emmanuel with one M. And, uh, yeah, there are many books about the fate of uh, lawyers, specifically during the Holocaust, but also other professionals. And, of course, there are tons of books about the Holocaust itself. But, anyway, you know, my website has my contact information, and I'm always happy to talk to people. Well, I'm hoping people can can visit there and learn more about you and and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Emmanuel, again, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time and these uh, uh, facts with us today. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. That was uh, Emmanuel Rosen. He is the author of a book, If Anyone Calls, Tell Them I Died. Um, it's his uh, fourth book. He lives in Menlo Park, California. With, he has uh, four adult children. His uh, wife, Daria, is a professor at Stanford. And uh, he was born and raised in Israel. Uh, we're going to have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <laughs> Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 